0: Hello again, this is Alan Lightman. Our three-part public TV series, Searching Our Quest for Meaning in the Age of Science, continues premiering on PBS stations nationwide and remains accessible on PBS.org through May 2023. After that, many stations will offer the series to members in their passport collection. My on-camera conversations for searching captured some fascinating material from a diverse cast of characters, Nobel laureates, MacArthur geniuses, leading researchers in biology, neuroscience, physics, and astronomy, plus philosophers, ethicists, a rabbi, the Dalai Lama, and a humanoid robot. These podcasts share more of that material than we could include in the broadcast series. And I'm happy to acknowledge that both the series and these podcasts are made possible by a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. This conversation is with Professor Jack Shostak, a leading researcher on the origins of life on Earth. Jack won the 2009 Nobel Prize for his work on how DNA ages. But as you'll hear, he didn't sit on his laurels. He changed his area of study to perhaps one of the most challenging topics in all of science. I asked him why. Okay. Well, thank you again, Jack, for helping us with this film project.
1: Delighted to help.
0: Um, I know that that in the first part of your career, you worked on the caps at the end of chromosomes Mm -hmm. to to keep them uh, stable, uh, the so-called telomeres, why did you change direction from that kind of research to the work you're doing now on the origin of life
1: uh, I think there there were there were several reasons i mean it it's it's fun to just change directions and have new new uh, projects new ideas to think about the you know back in the in the mid 80s, the telomere field was getting quite crowded. So there were a lot of people doing essentially the same experiments. So I spent some time looking around at other, other fields. And at the time, uh, RNA molecules that could catalyze chemical reactions had just been discovered. And it was, it was really revolutionary at, at, at the time. Um, to the, the work of Tom Cech and Sid Altman and, and, and others. Uh, and that, that made me uh, think that, well, maybe we could make some contribution in that area. So we, we started to work on, on these catalytic RNAs. And, and then that led kind of step by step to an interest in early evolution and, and the origin of life.
0: So it sounds like you preferred to work in a field that was not too crowded
1: absolutely (laughs) you know i I think there's absolutely no point in in working on uh, on a problem where people are just going to do the same thing right Uh, even if you are uh, faster better equipped or whatever and can make a discovery a a week or a month or a year ahead of everyone else what's what's the point if it's going to be done anyway so i'd much rather be in in a field where there are big problems and not so many people working on them. The problems have to be solvable, but it's kind of nice if people think they are so hard that they don't wanna work on it. That makes it ideal for me. <laughs> so
0: it sounds like your, your personal satisfaction is a motivation there. It's, it's not just getting advances in science, but it's your personal satisfaction.
1: Well, I just find it more enjoyable to to work on something where there are enough people to talk about the problem, but where it just wouldn't make any difference if I was doing it or not.
0: So you want to make a difference?
1: Of course. Everybody likes to make a difference.
0: I spoke with Professor Shostak in what was then his research laboratory in the Massachusetts General Hospital, part of Harvard University. Jack has now moved to the University of Chicago, where he heads up the Origins of Life Initiative. So I wanted to start by asking you how you got interested in science.
1: How I got interested in science? Wow, (laughs) that goes back a long way uh i I think i've been interested in science pretty much as long as i can remember certainly back in high school and even even before that um yeah math it was more math than maybe chemistry physics in those early days
0: What, what is it that that steered you towards chemistry and biology
1: I think it's just been a wandering path. I mean, there's so many interesting questions. And, uh, you know, biology is full of important, interesting questions. But a lot of them involve chemistry, if you really want to understand biology. So I've kind of gone back and forth between chemistry and biology.
0: I have a friend who's a a pretty smart guy. And he thinks that life could not have originated on Earth, because there wasn't time to create all of the molecules needed for life. He thinks that life had to come from outside of Earth. So, what do you think?
1: I I think that, um, you know, even going back to the Miller-Urey experiment, uh, there's lots of evidence, and lots of really modern, recent evidence that it's actually quite easy to make the molecules of life and and that they can be made very quickly.
0: The Miller-Urey experiment back in 1953 showed that if you combine gases then thought to be present on the early Earth along with water and some kind of energy, UV light or a spark of lightning, inorganic chemicals could transform into simple organic molecules. Chemistry plus energy could create the molecules found in living organisms.
1: In fact, when you get to the level of having the building blocks of biology, the timescale has to be short because these are complicated molecules that tend to fall apart. So you have to make them and use them quickly, right? So when we're talking about needing a lot of time, that's to set the stage. You, know, you have to build planets, uh, find the right environments on planets. That's what takes time. Doing the chemistry is can be fast.
0: What does it take for us to decide that a thing is alive?
1: <laughs> so, I think that's hard if you're looking at individual things, and, and we use this term to mean lots of different things, right? But To me, or to people who are interested in the origin of life, what we care about is a pathway. How you go all the way from planet formation to simple chemistry to more complicated chemistry and then self-assembly into simple systems that can start to evolve and then evolution into more complex forms of biology, including everything that we see around us now and exactly to me exactly where you draw the dividing line in there is not really relevant or interesting at some level what i care about is a system that can start to evolve in a darwinian sense that's the core of biology and of living systems but you know some people might who, who really want to define life might put the boundary at different Places along this pathway. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, there's there's too much effort spent in trying to pin down a definition of life. That when you zoom into the, the those early stages, everything becomes a little fuzzy, and there's no point in trying to make a hard and fast definition.
0: So you mentioned that that the formation of, of molecules on Earth that would be connected to life. That had to happen pretty quickly, can you describe what it is that you and your your laboratory is actually trying to do? What is your research about?
1: Sure, what what we're interested in is, it's kind of a narrow piece of the whole problem of origin of life, we're most interested in, once you have the right chemical building blocks, how do they come together to make a simple cell? Something that can grow and divide and start evolving eventually lead to more complicated forms of life. But that's our focus.
0: And how are you going about doing that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's uh, taking uh, you know quite a while. We've been working on this for some time. But the, the central part of it is having some genetic material. And we think the primordial genetic material was actually RNA, which plays many central roles in, in modern biology.
0: As we say in searching part one, in life today, the double-stranded DNA molecule carries the information for making a living organism. The simpler RNA molecule contains the same information, but has the added ability to build proteins and other elements of a cell. In other words, RNA is both architect and builder. That's why many biologists, including Shostak, think that life on Earth began with RNA.
1: So we've been trying to understand how RNA emerged from the earlier chemistry, and especially how RNA could replicate before the evolution of, for example, protein enzymes, or even RNA enzymes. And then we have to put that together with a cell membrane that also can grow and divide. And then everything has to work together. So there are a lot of questions, a lot of things to work out.
0: So what is the difference between RNA and DNA?
1: It's a small chemical difference. It's, it's just uh, basically an oxygen atom in a particular place in the sugar, but it has, a, it has a strong effect on the physical properties. But basically both RNA and DNA can encode information in the sequence of their bases. Um, As single-stranded molecules, they can fold up and make complicated shapes that can carry out biochemical functions. In modern biology, RNA does that sort of thing. DNA is pretty much totally specialized for uh, coding for information. Uh, But in the early days, we think RNA both uh, was the the vessel of information and also carried out uh, biochemical functions.
0: So you mentioned uh, that you need a cell wall, you need raw materials, you need some Mm -hmm. RNA. Uh, Where are you in your research in creating those things?
1: (laughs) So for the last five years or so, we've focused on the chemistry of trying to copy the information in a strand of RNA. And I think we've, We've learned a lot about that. We're getting pretty good at that. The next step that that we've been starting to work on pretty intensely is how to go beyond just copying to actually having cycles of replication. So that's one thing. Uh, Earlier, we'd actually made a lot of progress on the cell membrane formation. So these are beautiful physical systems because very simple molecules will spontaneously self-assemble into membranes, close up to make vesicles. And we've learned several different ways in which we can make them grow and divide. There are still some issues in making everything there compatible with the RNA chemistry, but but that's what's coming up, is, is trying to get everything to work together.
0: So if I understand what you said, right now you're, you're trying to get the RNA to make copies of copies. Yes, is, is that a good exactly. way of describing yes. it? Yes. What are, what obstacles are you are you
1: facing there? <laughs> so so the main issue, the main criterion is that this has to happen spontaneously, just from chemistry, right? No, there are no enzymes around at the origin of life, so it has to be fairly simple. Um, one of the main Issues remaining is a a realistic way to bring energy into the system. So you have to have a way of uh, of feeding the system both with the chemical building blocks, but also make them chemically reactive. So you have to bring energy into the system. There's been a lot of progress on that, but I think that's one of the areas that still needs uh, a lot of work.
0: Where do you think was the, the, the location of the first life? Was it Darwin's ponds? Was it uh, water vents in the ocean? Was it, was, was it surface volcanoes? Was it uh, a glob of clay?
1: <laughs> so I think out of all of those, the only one I could really rule out would be the deep, deep uh, sea vents. We think surface environments are definitely important because a lot of the chemistry requires ultraviolet light from the early sun. Um, and we think that you probably need a kind of a fluctuating environment, you know, where things can can dry out and then get wet again, uh, where temperature fluctuations occur. So not a static homogeneous environment. So shallow lakes, volcanic areas, hot springs, all of those kinds of environments, I think are, are, are interesting to think about.
0: You once said that uh, one can view your work as getting from chemistry to biology. Yes. <laughs> can, you, can you describe what you meant by that?
1: Sure, well to me, um, you know, this kind of goes back to the famous uh, saying of Dobzhansky,
0: Theodosius Dobzhansky was a Russian emigre born in Kiev and an evolutionary biologist. He made this statement in 1973, arguing against a creationist point of view.
1: Okay, that nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. And to get biology started, for it to be biology, you need to have evolution. And, and I mean evolution in the Darwinian sense of natural selection, variation, and and not in the chemical or physical sense of a system that's changing with time. So it's important to have a system that can evolve in in a Darwinian sense, so that useful information can accumulate and cells can become more adapted to their environments, can adapt to new, different environments. That's what we're aiming for. Well,
0: my background is in physics. Uh, and, of course, every science thinks that theirs is the queen of, of science, but would you object to my saying that we're going from physics to chemistry to biology?
1: No, I think that's a perfectly reasonable way of of, uh, of looking at it. Uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, there, there are lots of... Uh, you know, there's a long history of physicists becoming, you know, totally engaged in biology. And yes. there, there are many questions in biology and in the origin of life that, that are really physics questions.
0: Uh, for for centuries, there's been uh, a debate between people who think that that a living thing is just a matter of of atoms and molecules, totally material, the, the, the mechanists and then the, right. the vitalists have believed that there's some non-material, uh, maybe supernatural essence in living things that, that's not subject to the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology. Right. My understanding is that almost all biologists today are mechanists yes. rather than yeah, vitalists.
1: Fine. Absolutely. I mean, nobody has ever come across anything that is, requires any supernatural explanation.
0: But, but that view, um, even as recently as a hundred years ago, there were some biologists who who were vitalists. Um, so, w- what is it that caused the the, the change and sort of the near n- near unanimous agreement among biologists? that there is no supernatural element in a living thing?
1: Well, I think it's because we understand more and more about biology in terms of its molecular structure and organization. Um, You know, I think these, these views that you require something supernatural or some mysterious thing about quantum mechanics to explain life, it usually comes from Uh, areas you know questions that we don't have the answer to yet but you know people study these questions and they figure things out and it turns out there's perfectly reasonable molecular explanations so I think that's that's why biologists you know have abandoned this idea of some bizarre supernatural uh, vital force
0: so are we all just atoms and molecules
1: well, that, I think that's also a misleading way to phrase it. It's not just atoms and molecules; it's it's the organization. There are layers and layers of emergent phenomena, where when you have collections of molecules and sources of energy, you get interesting, new, and often surprising phenomena. Uh, you know, uh, common in life, but also in other purely physical systems. Uh, so I think it's it's maybe these kinds of emergent phenomena that that puzzle people.
0: And uh, my understanding is that an emergent phenomena is a phenomena that you cannot understand just on the basis of its individual parts. There's some some collective, qualitative…
1: Yeah, you need to understand the interactions between all of the parts and when you have Interesting interactions or enough interactions or at the right uh, you know, level in terms of energies, then yeah, new things can happen.
0: So do you think that the, the emergence of the first life on Earth was an emergent phenomena?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it because you know if you just have molecules floating around in the solution, even if they're replicating, you can't do anything very interesting in the way of evolution. But when you have, if you combine informational molecules that can replicate with some kind of physical, spatial localization, for example, membrane-bound vesicles, then you have new phenomena that can occur, like Darwinian evolution. And so now you're off and running in a totally new ballgame.
0: So when you use the word vesicle, you mean something like a a container or a compartment?
1: Yeah, it's basically uh, a, a membrane uh, meaning, uh, so lipid molecules that, that self-assemble into a membrane, you know, similar to our cell membranes, but but made of simpler molecules. So these vesicles uh, can encapsulate uh, material. Uh, uh, nutrients can come in, and waste products can go out, and they can grow and divide. Just, I mean, just like cells.
0: Well, since we're talking about emergent phenomena, do you think that consciousness? It's an emergent <laughs> phenomenon.
1: Uh, I think that's pretty obviously an emergent phenomenon, it, it, and it's it's emergent, you know, not at the level of necessarily not of molecules, but of of uh, neural networks. And, uh, yeah, if I if I wasn't so engaged in order of life, I would probably be studying something like that.
0: Do you think that we'll ever be able to understand how the attributes of consciousness, say, the feeling of being present in the world, uh, self-awareness, memory, the ability to plan ahead, all of those things. Do you think that we'll ever be able to understand those in terms of the workings of, of, of
1: neurons? I think so, yeah. I don't, I don't see any fundamental barrier to that. I'm not saying it's an easy problem, but I think one of the things that maybe is giving people insights is is recognizing that this didn't happen all of a sudden with the emergence of humans, right? But, but you actually have to look back at, at where we came from in, in terms of you know, going all the way back to much simpler animals. And, and, and so the beginnings of perception have <laughs> evolved a long, long time ago. And, you know, and then you can imagine that becoming more and more uh, complicated and complete. And, and then you have perception of internal states and I imagine that that eventually evolved in, into consciousness. Uh, so I, yeah, I'm definitely, I hope I'm around long enough to to really see progress made in that area. Uh, I had a,
0: a conversation a few months ago with, with a very advanced Android named Bina48. <laughs> and uh, she could see me with sensors uh-huh. She could hear me. She had a a, a giant database Mm -hmm. so that she could carry on a conversation with me. Do you think that in the future that we may be able to create uh, uh, an AI device that we would call alive? And, And we'll use whatever definition of you as a biologist means for alive.
1: Well, I mean that's a great example of the semantic confusion around the term "alive," right? So, if something is a conscious being, they're they're alive, but they're not. It's not in the sense of biology that's evolving. So, and that's just a source of confusion. But to answer your question, I think yeah, definitely at at some point in the future, uh, there. I think there's no physical reason why. The computations that lead to self-awareness have to be instantiated in a biological machinery. They could equally well be done at some point in uh, you know, silicon or whatever is, is used. <laughs> the advances in natural language processing have been amazing actually just in the last few years. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a stunning advance. But we're, there's also a long way to go, obviously, which you probably could tell from your conversation.
0: I can imagine that that, that a, a very advanced uh, computer or Android in the future would be able to evolve. Uh, that that you could, you know, in or, the sense or,
1: of cultural evolution. I mean, uh, the cultural evolution of humanity has been accelerating at. You know dramatically over the last you know for thousands of years to to hundreds and so sure if you have super smart androids that can design even more advanced androids then yeah this could go on exponentially
0: I wondered how centuries-old speculations about life elsewhere in the universe has been illuminated by the work of Jack and his colleagues do you think that they're is
1: life on other planets? <laughs> uh, I I wish we knew. I think it's highly likely. I mean, there's no reason why there couldn't be, and it's a huge effort in astronomy, as you know. Probably half of astronomy now is uh, is is aimed at finding exoplanets that not only could support life, but actually do. It's a very interesting question to me, because if we found even one independent example of life out there, we would know for sure that it's not that hard. Uh, uh, conversely, you know, if we can show that all the steps in going from chemistry to biology are fairly easy, I think it will help astronomers uh, in their quest because it'll make it more likely that there's life out there. But yeah, I, I wish we knew.
0: Do you ever worry that in your own research where you describe this progress of making cell walls, making a replicating molecule, that you might hit some obstacle that proves very, very difficult?
1: Yeah, although I have to say, I worry less about that now than 20 years ago. Back back when we first started working on, on membranes uh, which was a totally new area of chemistry and biophysics for me i had absolutely no idea how how you could have a system that could grow and divide just just based on chemistry and physics and so that could have been one of those roadblocks right but actually it turned out uh, once we really got into it, that it's fairly trivial. And there are actually multiple ways of solving that problem. I think until recently, the idea of chemically driven RNA replication was, could have been one of those roadblocks. And I think now we have lots of ideas about how to get over that problem. So you know there are gaps in our knowledge but at this point i'm not seeing anything that is an obvious severe roadblock
0: well i imagine that the the very first thing that you create in the lab that that, that um, is able to get energy is mm-hmm. able to replicate is able to evolve it will be even simpler than an amoeba
1: Oh, much simpler, orders of magnitude so every much, living thing on earth today is so complicated,
0: much simpler, but eventually, looking into the future, there might be a time where where we could create in the laboratory multicellular organisms, if we follow this progress of science that you're <laughs> suggesting, and if we're able to create a, a multicellular organism or something as advanced as an amoeba, do you think? there would be any difference in such a human-made creation and, say, a bug that we find under a rock? <laughs> should, should we view those things any differently? Should, we, sh- should our attitude be different between something that's human-made in the lab, and a living organism, and something that is, quote, non-human-made or natural?
1: So I think what's interesting to me is the question of whether you could make or build forms of life that uh, don't just recapitulate the chemistry we know in existing biology, but could you build life that's very different in its chemistry? And that sort of gets at the question of, uh, you know, is there only one way to get to life? And if we find life elsewhere, is it gonna look the same as what we're familiar with? Or could it be that there are many ways to make life that are very different, and that would then evolve in very different directions? And to me, that, that's the interesting question. Uh, what
0: uh, I know that, that uh scientists do science for a lot of different reasons. Um, I think you once talked about the pleasure that you get from doing science. And can you describe that a little bit?
1: (laughs) Uh, It's a little hard to, but you know, I just enjoy trying to figure out interesting puzzles and the, the puzzles that interest me are mostly puzzles of the natural world and how things work. So, you know, I love talking to people in the lab about experiments, new results, you know, if there are things that are surprising, then it's just interesting to think about that. And I also like to just, you know, uh, sit in my office or at home with a pad of paper and just start doodling and trying to come up with, you know, new ideas, new explanations, new things to try.
0: Do you think that there's a difference between experimental science and theoretical science and this kind of uh s- social community that you were describing.
1: Uh, not really. I mean we talk to people who do theory. I mean what what we're doing is obviously is like <laughs> seriously experimental. So it, it it makes it harder for us to, you know, sort of Move around easily, but you know, we enjoy like going to meetings and talking to people. And there are a lot of people doing interesting theory and, and you know, at different levels of physics, chemistry, and biology. So, I mean, they, they're complementary, they have to work together.
0: What do you think are the, the most important problems in science right now? If you were to list, you know, two or three or four of the the biggest problems in all of science, what, what would you say?
1: Well, uh, in terms of fundamental questions, the, the things that attract me are, are the kind of the big origins questions, right? The origin of the universe, the origin of life, the origin of the mind or, or consciousness. But obviously there are like super important, uh, more applied questions that probably, Top among them, things like climate change and, and you know, medical problems. Uh, so those are also fascinating to think about and work on.
0: Well, let me ask you something very speculative. I mean, I know okay. that I've been asking some speculative <laughs> questions already, but if there were some um, some infinite intelligence. Uh, that knew the answers to all questions in ah, yes. science Yes. and if you could push a button and be told how life originated on Earth, would you push the button?
1: <laughs> no, probably not. I mean, it's just, uh, it's been so much fun thinking about these problems and making progress on them, you know, slowly, bit by bit. I think it would be kind of disappointing to just be handed the answer.
0: If if we look at, at at all of the advances in science in the last couple of hundred years, not just in biology, but in, in all of the sciences and, and the, the tremendous things we've learned, uh do you think that we should be amazed or humbled by all of that?
1: Oh both, I suppose. I mean this progress is it ha- it's just so amazing. There's so many like interesting, surprising things. you know and, and yet, you always think, well, why didn't we figure this out you know 10 years ago or 100 years ago? so yeah
0: Well, I guess figuring out some of it is a matter of, of increasing technology.
1: Which is going faster and faster. Yeah, I mean we have the, the tools that we have in this lab didn't exist. Even thirty years ago. And and a lot of them are newer than that. So yeah, it's it's an amazing acceleration.
0: Can you imagine where biology will be fifty years from now?
1: <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I think when I was when I was a graduate student, which is almost fifty years ago, I don't think I could have imagined the things that we're doing now, the tools that we have now, you know, the whole the whole uh, emergence of computational biology that relies on massive computing power, massive data collection, you know, didn't exist. I couldn't have imagined that uh, when I was a student. So I, I imagine there'll be equally uh, amazing, uh, you imagine changes, unimaginable things. Yeah. Well, we talked
0: about life elsewhere in the universe, and there's there's certainly a worldwide effort to find life elsewhere.
1: Yeah, signs of life.
0: <laughs> signs of life, but when we and that effort, we're not going to be able to see the evolutionary path on planet X, right? That led. So we're going to have to make some kind of judgment as whether a particular molecule is observed or something as a sign of life.
1: And, and that's, so there's a lot of people thinking about that. Uh, I, I think the consensus these days is that there's probably no one molecular signature that would be totally definitive. For example, oxygen in the atmosphere. There, there are physical ways of getting that, and there's what you see here, the biological way of getting it. So we need to think a little more deeply about what's a really definitive sign of life. Um, And I think, yeah, well, as you know, there are a lot of people uh, working on that problem.
0: Do you think that that water is required for life?
1: (laughs) That's an interesting question. Uh, Obviously, it's required for the biology that we're familiar with. But the question is here is, you know, okay, we know there are environments where you have uh, liquid solvents like oil or uh, on uh, Saturn's moon Titan, we have these these amazing seas of methane and ethane. Could you have life in an environment like that? I, I think that's a fascinating question. Uh, there is one uh, person in my lab who is trying to design and make molecules that could act as genetic materials in, a, in an environment without water. It's a really, really hard problem, uh, but it's definitely a fun thing to think about.
0: Well, I know that, that a lot of the, the effort of the, the Kepler satellite uh, was to find habitable planets, yes. which would be the right distance from the central star to have liquid water. Yes. Uh, not too close that would, that the water would evaporate, not too far away that it would freeze. So there was very definitely a thought behind that operation that you needed liquid water.
1: Yeah, obviously. I mean, I, I think it makes sense uh, to have that focus on liquid water because that is the basis of of what gave rise to biology uh, on on the early Earth, and it's very speculative and, you know, it's possibly unlikely that there could be life without water. I mean, we don't know for sure, but, and, and so we, we don't want to rule out looking for other types of environments, but I, I think it totally makes sense to focus on places where you can have liquid water if, for now.
0: Sort of like looking for the lost key <coughs> under the lamp <laughs> where you see the light. How do you think that, uh, when we when we do create um, a life form, mm-hmm. something that can evolve, right and so on. Yeah. do you think it will will change our view of ourselves at all, of how we fit in the cosmos?
1: I think uh, well, that may depend on on the person. I think for me, it would be satisfying be a matter of satisfaction and understanding the pathway that brought us here. It's not like there's some, you know, magical boundary that, you know, changes everything. It's it's just, you know, we we think now that there were simple physical and chemical explanations for how we got here. We'd like to actually know what they are. (laughs) And and there would be some satisfaction in contributing to that effort.
0: So, So we might be the first life form that understands how it originated
1: we might be or there might be right. you know life throughout the universe where other uh, other life forms are thinking about the same problem
0: has your work on origins the origins of life made you more optimistic or more or more pessimistic about the future
1: the future of uh being able the, to solve the, those problems, well, or the, the future, future of, of humanity? The, the, the or future or the of future humankind. future of humankind. And even the struggles through the pandemic have, on the one hand, you know, the just amazingly fast emergence of effective vaccines is a great cause for optimism and our ability to solve huge medical problems. and. And I think the environmental problems that we face in, in terms of climate change, are, they're solvable. We know how to solve them, in fact. But all of the problems really come down to a matter of will and politics. And uh, I don't know, some days I'm optimistic, some days less so.
0: We've, we've talked a lot about what is natural and the creation of life and the, mm-hmm. the pathway to life, do you feel that that makes us Homo sapiens more a part of nature, or does it highlight our integration with nature?
1: I actually, I like that way of thinking about it. Right, we, we are a product of nature, and and so understanding how we're a product of nature right from the beginning, uh, I think builds on on that view that we're not something separate and different, but we're a part of nature, and we should accept that and live with that.
0: I think there's one more. I did ask you a moment ago about whether the advances in science uh, should make us amazed or more humble, and and Mm -hmm. you said both. Uh, Have they made us, uh, how have they affected our sense of what it means to be human.
1: So I think that goes back to what we were saying about being part of nature and connected to nature. So I, I think understanding the steps, you know, not just from the origin of life, but, but all of the subsequent evolutionary steps and in the many evolutionary steps that eventually led up to self-awareness. I think that we have to realize that's all part of nature we're also just part of nature.
0: So we would see ourselves as part of a continuum and not something qualitatively different.
1: Yes. And other I think that's a better way of looking at things.
0: You once said that that you hope that when we do succeed in creating something that we would call a living thing, mm-hmm. you hope that the public understands that the the creation of life is totally natural. Yes, yes. And and what did you mean by that?
1: Well, this goes back to what we were saying before, you know, is, is there any need for any kind of supernatural intervention to get to life? And obviously, I don't think there is. And if we can show that there is a kind of continuous pathway of straightforward steps that connects chemistry, the environments of a young planet to the emergence of biology, then I I think it would be logical to just accept life as another natural phenomenon. I mean, it's no less wonderful or beautiful because we understand that there's a natural origin for it. Um, And on my optimistic days, I would also hope that that would make, make people more interested in in having rational explanations for the world around them and not just taking things on faith and you know, coming up with believing in bizarre explanations for things.
0: So, so it seems from what you're saying, it sounds like that's related to, to evidence-based thinking.
1: Exactly, yes. <laughs> we certainly need more of that, in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, this uh, pandemic would have been over a long time ago if we didn't have all this uh, you know, anti-vaccine nonsense.
0: Thanks to Jack Shostak, and to all those at Mass General and Harvard who assisted us in the logistics of filming in his lab. Shostak's research is truly cutting edge. If any lab on earth seems a candidate to be the first to create simple life from scratch, Is likely to be his. But as you heard, the complex research has some down-to-earth and easy-to-understand take-homes. We humans are part of nature. We belong in the physical and living cosmos. And our brains are primed and capable of understanding more and more about where we fit in this strange and amazing universe. And thanks also to you for listening. Until next time, this is Alan Lightman for
1: Searching.